Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. It's a new year, it's a new us, but it's the same old great podcast you've come to know and love. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, The Guardian is reporting that an Egyptian pharaoh's mummified body has finally given up its secrets, and this pharaoh was unwrapped digitally. Mm. This is for Amenhotep I, using 3D-computed tomography, or CT scanning technology. He was about 5'6", circumcised and had good teeth which is apparently noteworthy for back in the age having good teeth is kind of a big deal sure he seems to have resembled his father having this narrow chin small narrow nose curly hair and mildly protruding upper teeth <laughs> the teeth i know i keep harping on the teeth here but they were so good because of how amazing the mummification process was so we all know that mummified bodies are really well preserved but they found that even tiny bones inside the ears were preserved hmm Amenhotep I was the second king of the 18th dynasty. He ruled Egypt for about 21 years between 1525 and 1504 BC. His throne name was, I can't possibly pronounce it, but it translates to holy is the soul of Ray. And he is largely hmm. seen as having a pretty peaceful reign, which gave him time to look at administrative organization and the building of temples, you know, all the fun uh, infrastructure week stuff we hear a lot about. He actually did it. <laughs> we do know, however, that there were decoded hieroglyphics that indicate that this particular pharaoh was unwrapped by priests in the 11th century BC, which hmm. is during the 21st dynasty. So part of that was done because they needed to repair damage done by tomb robbers. Mm. They think that probably the priests were not actually trying to steal things because he was wrapped with such perfect care. Um, and that's why they didn't want to disturb it by unwrapping it, you know, physically this time, but to actually do it digitally. And you can even see there's a picture of him kind of rolling into the scanning machine. And he's like in this box <laughs> with some bubble wrap. And the wrappings are, you know, I mean, almost like cross stitch. They look super intentional and beautiful. They even have garlands of delphiniums, a beautiful painted burial mask. So they didn't want to disturb the hard work that these priests had done in repairing this so many centuries ago anyway. Mm -hmm. Some other cool facts here. They found a preserved wasp <laughs> when the coffin was first opened. They're thinking that the wasp was attracted by the smell of all those garlands of flowers and just kind of became part of the posse. And they also found that Amenhotep's brain was intact. And if you're anything like me, the only Egyptology factoid you remember from your early schooling is that they used that hook through the nose yeah. to pull out the brain. Mm -hmm. They took right? it out the nose, exactly. Yep. For some reason, this one, he didn't get the nose hook. I, who knows why? <laughs> But, you know, we're still able to do <laughs> excavation into history and customs. But now we can do it without having to destroy things. Maybe the start of a trend. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, maybe this way they avoided to release any curses. Although oh, yeah. I do expect an ancient Egyptian computer virus to go around the world. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com, and it's titled, America Once Experimented with Building Concrete Ships. 
here's why it didn't pan out. <laughs> and it's not the obvious, you know, it's not okay. that it just sunk because it's right. concrete. <laughs> In times of war, the U.S. government often requires a make-do attitude using what materials are available and working around material shortages. During World War II, for instance, the U.S. government required silk for parachutes, forcing hosiery manufacturers to make stockings out of nylon instead. Mm. The composition of pennies and nickel coins were also altered to free up key metals for the war effort, and cottage mm. cheese exploded in popularity as an <laughs> alternative to meat requisitioned for military rations. Wow. That is a poor substitute for a steak. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, I wanted a steak dinner. Have a bowl of cottage cheese instead. That, uh, yeah. I'm not buying. <laughs> but it's for the war effort. I get it. Right. Yeah. So shipbuilding, it turns out, is no exception to this. The United States experienced shortages of steel during both world wars, leading to repeated experimentation with concrete to build ships. Concrete is actually fairly light as far as construction materials go at 150 pounds per cubic foot. Still, even though steel is heavier at 490 pounds per square foot, it's also much stronger and shipbuilders require much less of it to construct a seaworthy hull. Mm. Concrete ships seem to run aground more often than regular ships, likely due to their deeper drafts, which is the distance between the waterline and the bottom of the hull, created by the need for a thicker hull. The weight of the ships also required more powerful engines, increasing fuel consumption and operating costs. Only 12 of the projected 24 concrete cargo ships were built during World War I, and few were still operating a decade after the war ended. All 24 of the ships ordered during World War II were built, but at least two, the SS Vitruvius and SS David O. Sailor, were intentionally sunk within a matter of months to form the Gooseberry Breakwater for the D-Day landings at Normandy. Goes to show that uh, when you have concrete ships, you can turn them into concrete walls, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, they, they went to some good, at least. Yeah. Listen, we as humans always have loved a good wall, haven't we? I mean, the bigger, yeah. the thicker, the more concretier it is. The better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the better fates was that of the SS Palo Alto, which was beached at Seacliff State Park at Santa Cruz, California. Palo Alto was turned into a tourist attraction, complete with a dance floor, heated swimming pool, and a fishing pier. Mm. So, you know, at least it went to some popular entertainment use. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, they basically made a concrete pier that just used to happen to float. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this article, again, is from popularmechanics.com, which I mentioned because there is a video showing the construction of the concrete ships and how exactly they float. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested, you should check that out. Nice. I get some buoyancy science in there. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me wonder if you build a big enough concrete house, maybe that could float too. And then, you know, during the next Texas flood, <laughs> I don't know, I'm just, just saying. Ride the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I come with you. Just spitballing. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, next up, we are going to destroy some childhood memories. Uh, Yay! How do you guys feel about Bambi? Well, that was already a pretty painful memory, watching Bambi's mom. Yeah. <laughs> I know that Bambi's mom dies, but I've never actually seen it. Like, my family didn't oh. do the, the classic Disney. We went, like, straight to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So, this came as a surprise to me, and maybe it will to you, too. But according to The Guardian, Bambi was actually based on a 1923 Austrian novel by oh. Felix Salton. It was for adults. 
And hmm. like a lot of books written during that era, it was actually a dark political allegory. <gasps> wow. So, you know, in fairness to Disney, he was not entirely responsible for watering down the story. Disney based his adaptation on the English translation of the novel, which apparently changed quite a bit of the tone and content. <laughs> and the reason we're talking about all this now is because a new translation of the original book is set to be released this month. <gasps> which translator Jake Zipes of the University of Minnesota says is much closer to the original source material. Ooh, so this would kind of be like if someone in, I don't know, Mongolia got a translation of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yeah, well, that is actually a very apt comparison because they said... Both George Orwell and the Sultan guy, one of the reasons they used animals for their metaphors was because the things they were talking about, people couldn't face. Like nobody wanted to read about persecuted people or right. problematic governments. So they had to use animals. Yeah, you have to abstract it to create a little distance so the story can get through. Kind of like mouse, right? Right. You have the mice portraying Jews and the cats are the Nazis. Yes. Well, and speaking of Jews and Nazis, that is also the parable that this book was originally <gasps> talking about. Oh. Author Felix Saltern was born Sigmund Salzman, which at the time would have been recognized as a very Jewish name. So he changed it as a teenager when he began submitting poems and book reviews for publication. Huh. And this was back in the 1880s, to be clear. Like Jews were being persecuted long before Hitler came along. He just mm -hmm. sort of formally coalesced the bigotry that was already rampant at right. the time. And in Austria and Germany in particular, Jews were blamed for the loss of World War I, Ugh. which obviously the logic for that is insane. Yeah. But it's what those people were thinking at the time. And Sultan was seeing how anti-Semitism was increasing in his home country and wanted to write something that could show people how dangerous persecution was and where it could ultimately lead. Yes. Like he basically predicted the Holocaust. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And the Nazis recognized this meaning of the book, too, because they banned it in 1935 as, quote, Jewish propaganda. But so what happens in the book is first Bambi's mother dies. No surprise there. But the primary emotion that Bambi has isn't sadness. It's terror. Like, this is a horror novel. The hunters yeah. are going through the woods, killing indiscriminately. And then Bambi's cousin, Gobo, is actually tricked into thinking that he's special and the hunters will be kind to him as long as he doesn't make a fuss. Oh. Like, he's, quote, you know, one of the good ones. Like, it's awful. Oh. And so, of course, he's murdered, too. And then this majestic stag takes Bambi in and is going to protect him because he's big and strong and has lived through a lot of turmoil. And then, of course, he dies. Oh. And by the end of the book, the general conclusion that the surviving animals come to is that they are born to be killed, they don't have a choice, and there is no hope. Like, it's what? really dark. And Zipes says the dialogue of all these creatures makes it really clear that these are people talking about human moral quandaries. This is not just a story about, you know, animal rights or conservation or mm -hmm. cute little animals. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, when the Holocaust did actually come, Salton survived by fleeing to Switzerland but by then, he'd already sold the film rights for Bambi to an American director for $1,000, <gasps> or roughly $20,000 today. That director then sold the rights on to Disney, so Sultan and his family never saw a dime from the animated version, which has by now grossed over $260 million. Uh, but to be fair, they're almost like different stories. Right, <laughs> given right. It's basically, they took a name is what they did. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my. I, I'm dying to read this now. <laughs> yeah, well, the translation's coming out. And I actually went down this weird internet rabbit hole because you mentioned Animal Farm, and that was mentioned in the article as well. 
And it got me thinking about, you know, how bizarre would it be if Disney had taken this obviously political novel and made this watered down version of Animal Farm for kids. But then I found out there actually was an (gasps) animated version of Animal Farm that came out in the 1950s, except it totally embraced the political message. And it was, in fact, commissioned by the CIA (gasps) to get the kids learning early just how bad Stalin was. Oh, that's CIA. Yeah. They're like, we're going to get some cartoons for the kids going. That's one of our projects. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article is from The Marginalian, which is a rebrand of brain pickings, if that rings a bell for any of you. Hmm. And this one is titled Tenacity, the Art of Integration and the key to a flexible mind. Wisdom from the life of Mary Somerville, for whom the word scientist was coined. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) She was a middle-aged Scottish mathematician, and she used to wake up in the morning to spend a couple of hours with Newton before the day punctuates her thinking with the constant interruptions of mothering four children and managing a bustling household. She's quoted as saying, a man can always command his time under the plea of business. A woman is not allowed any such excuse. Mm -hmm. So growing up, she spent the daylight hours painting and playing piano. When her parents realized that the household candle supply had thinned because she had been staying up all night to read Euclid, they confiscated her candles. (gasps) Yeah, they took away her candles because she was up all night reading Euclid. Reading Too much math, young lady. (laughs) (laughs) She even remembers her father telling her mother, Peg, we must put a stop to this or we shall have Mary in a straitjacket one of these days. But she was undeterred, having already committed the first six books of Euclid to memory. Okay. Wow. And the way that this article writes the sentences we're saying. The spring and summer of her life passed with her genius laying restive beneath the frost of the era's receptivity to the female mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She published her first scientific paper at the age of 46, and it was a study on the magnetic properties of violet rays. Even Lord Brown, the influential founder of the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, was so impressed he asked Somerville to translate a mathematical treatise by Pierre-Simon Laplace. So... She took the project on. It's called In the Mechanism of the Heavens, and it was published in 1831 after years of work. And in this, Somerville hadn't just translated the math, but she had expanded upon it and made it comprehensible to lay readers, which in part popularized Laplace's esoteric ideas. So she basically Hmm. made it easier to digest so people could really get into it. And the book was an instant success. It drew attention from the titans of European science, There was even a famed novelist named Maria Edgeworth who wrote a radiant fan letter that said, I was long in the state of the boa constrictor after a full meal. My mind was so distended by the magnitude, the immensity of what you put into it. I want to get a letter like that, right? And it's not only that. Edgeworth was particularly taken with a beautiful sentence as well as a sublime idea. And, And here's what she was taken with. This is about the propagation of sound waves, if you can believe it. Quote, At a very small height above the surface of the earth, the noise of the tempest ceases and the thunder is heard no more in those boundless regions where the heavenly bodies accomplish their periods in eternal and sublime silence. 
What? So she was a poet and a scientist. Yes. Like she was just doing it all. And that's part of how this person came to be named the first scientist because Somerville published her next major treatise, which was on the connection of the physical sciences. And it was an elegant and erudite weaving together of what had previously been fragmented fields of astronomy, mathematics, geology, and chemistry. And it quickly became one of the scientific bestsellers of the century and earned her path-breaking admission into the Royal Astronomical Society the following year. Even when Maria Mitchell, who was America's first professional female astronomer and the first woman employed by the U.S. government for a professional task, she got to meet Somerville and was like shaking. She spent three afternoons with Somerville in Scotland and left feeling that, quote, no one can make the acquaintance of this remarkable woman without increased admiration for her. So months after she published this connection, which is basically a multidisciplinary mushing together of all these scientific fields, the English polymath William Wewell, who was then the master of Trinity College, he wrote a review of her work, and this is where he coined the word scientist to refer to her. And the reason was the hmm. most commonly used term up until that point was man of science. And clearly that could not apply ah. to a woman, not, you know. <laughs> At least he didn't coin the word scientess, you know, like he made it match <laughs> yeah, the other true. other terms. That's that's great. Good Exa- job, him. Exactly. It set up a, a taxonomy of nomenclature for us to use. Mm-hmm. And the article goes on with a lot of different things. But what I love is that there are images interspersed where we've got celestial bodies, part of beadwork and quilts. There's a solar system quilt that was begun in 1869 and completed in 1876 to teach women astronomy when they were barred from higher education in science. Like this whole article is a testament to women doing what we do best despite everything else. And yet still not really getting a lot of credit for it because again, I had never heard of her. Yeah, no, I've never heard her name either. Listen, check out the article. It's got a lot more written a lot better than anything that I could have said. Yeah, I want to see that quilt. That sounds really beautiful. It's just amazing. They've also got phases of Venus and Saturn from the early 1700s that is available as a print, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, speaking of scientists... The next article comes to us from LiveScience.com, and it's titled, Did Benjamin Franklin Really Discover Electricity with a Kite and Key? Ooh. Well, if it's a question, the answer's always no, right? Like, that's how Usually, headlines work. Usually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Typically. Wait, no, no, the answer is, it depends. Right, yeah. right. You know, that's the real scientific answer. <laughs> Let's jump in. So... Though most people know Benjamin Franklin, an American founding father, legendary statesman, and the face of the U.S. $100 bill for his political contributions, Franklin was well known in his time as a scientist and an inventor, a true polymath. He was a member of several scientific societies and was a founding member of the American Philosophical Society. As a result, he stayed informed on the most pressing scientific questions that occupied learned people of his time, one of which was the nature of lightning. As for the kite and key experiment, most people were aware of the version in which the metal key acted as a lightning rod and Franklin subsequently discovered electricity. However, several details about this experiment are unknown, including when and where it happened, and some historians even doubt that it took place. For starters, it's a common myth that Franklin discovered electricity. Electricity had already been discovered and used for centuries before Franklin's experiment. Franklin (laughs) lived from 1709 to 1790, and during his time, electricity was understood as the interaction between two different fluids, which Franklin later referred to as plus and minus. 
According to <laughs> French chemist Charles-Francois de Cisternay du Fay, materials that possessed the same type of fluid would repel, while opposite fluids attracted one another. We now understand that these fluids are electrical charges generated by atoms, and atoms are made up of negatively charged electrons orbiting a positively charged nucleus, which is made up of protons and neutrons. Mm -hmm. It was unknown prior to Franklin's experiment whether lightning was electrical in nature, though some scientists, including Franklin, had speculated just that. Paige Talbot, author and editor of Benjamin Franklin in Search of a Better World, and the former president and CEO of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, said that Franklin was particularly interested in this question because lightning strikes had caused disastrous fires in cities and towns where houses were made of wood, and many homes in the U.S. were at the time as well. By attaching a key to the string of a kite, thus creating a conductor for the electrical charge, he was demonstrating that a pointed metal object placed at a high point on a building connected to a conductor that would carry the electricity away from the building and into the ground could make a huge difference to the long-term safety of the inhabitants, Talbot told ah. Live Science in an email. In hmm. other words, by creating a lightning rod, Franklin was helping to protect wooden homes and buildings from being directly struck by lightning. So here's how the experiment worked. Standing in a shed, Franklin flew a kite made up of a simple silk handkerchief stretched across a cross made of two cedar strips during a lightning storm. The tail of the kite was made of two materials, the upper end attached to the kite was made of hemstring and attached to a small metal key, while the lower end, held by Franklin, was made of silk. The hemp would get soaked by the rain and conduct electrical charge, while the silk string would remain dry because it is held under cover. Mm. As Franklin observed his flying kite, he saw that the hemp strands stood on end as they began to accumulate electrical charge from the ambient air. When he placed his finger near the metal key, he reportedly felt a sharp spark as the negative charges that had accumulated in the key were attracted to the positive charges in his hand. Talbot said, Franklin published a statement about the experiment in the Pennsylvania Gazette, the newspaper he published on October 19, 1752. He then sent the text of the statement to a patron of the American Philosophical Society named Lewis Collinson. Franklin referred to the experiment in his autobiography and other colleagues in Europe wrote about it as well. Notably, the experiment appeared in the 1767 book History and Present Status of Electricity by Joseph Priestley, an English chemist. Priestley had heard about the kite and key experiment from Franklin himself around 15 years after the fact, and in his book he wrote that it occurred during June 1752. However, exactly when the experiment came to Franklin and when he did it is a matter of debate. There are some historians who doubt whether Franklin actually did the experiment himself or merely outlined its possibility. Author mm. Tom Tucker, in his book Bolt of Fate, Benjamin Franklin and His Electric Kite Hoax, stated that Franklin <laughs> wanted to thwart William Watson, a member of the Royal Society of London and a preeminent electrical experimenter. Watson had sabotaged the publication of some of Franklin's previous reports and had ridiculed his experiments in the Royal Society. Always about the rivalries, Oh, man. yeah. <laughs> so the question is, could Franklin have felt pressured to invent the kite story to get back at Watson? Tucker also noted that Franklin's description of his experiment in the Pennsylvania Gazette was phrased in the future conditional tense. Franklin wrote, As soon as any of the thunderclouds come over the kite, the pointed wire will draw the electric fire from them. Mm -hmm. Franklin could have been simply saying that the experiment could, in theory, be performed. Given right. that his statement has a few missing details, Franklin didn't list a time or location, for example, 
It's possible that the American diplomat did not perform the experiment himself. Well, and it also sounds like the whole deal is he basically just built up a static charge and then touched the key. Yeah. Because the way they always made it sound as kids was like he got struck by lightning. Yeah. And I was always like, how how did he live? Like, that's not something you live through. And if you do, you've got some char marks on you. Yeah. But all he really did, (laughs) if he did it at all, was sort of like build up a little static charge and then get his finger. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's what it seems like from these, you know, historians. And really, like, that portrayal is a super kid cartoony sort of idea. You know, you get zapped by lightning, and then your whole skeleton lights up, and you go white and black flashing briefly, and then you're fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And besides that, I'm going to just say right now, maybe it's just me and I'm a failure. It is hard to fly a kite. (laughs) Like, you have to have really good conditions for that, and the middle of a storm is not one of them. The the Mm -hmm. kite would get wet. It would not fly. In a rainstorm. (laughs) Yeah, true. And, you know, hemp and silk, not really common kite materials as far as I'm familiar. But um, I mean, listen, if you got to go with a conspiracy theory, Ben Franklin lied about the kite electricity experiment. It's probably one of the safer ones that you can (laughs) do. For sure. I'll I'll throw my weight behind that. I don't care who knows it. (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, some historians remain unconvinced that the experiment wasn't carried out pointing to Franklin's great respect for scientific pursuits. Franklin experts such as the late American critic and biographer Carl Van Doren also point to the fact that Priestley specified the month in which Franklin performed his experiment, suggesting that Franklin must have given him precise details directly. But that's Mm. about where it ends, so, you know, who knows? It's a bunch of he said, he said, because in this scenario, they were all men. Um, Yes. (laughs) But... (laughs) That aside, you know, it's hard to say. I'm glad that Franklin got some amount of shock to contribute to our understanding of lightning rods. And that's very useful tech to this day. So thank you, you Benjamin Franklin, probably. Probably. (laughs) Allegedly. Next link. Next link. Well, Sarah Zhang at The Atlantic has a somewhat strange problem to put before us. Her article is called, You Have No Idea How Hard It Is to Get a Hamster Drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. First world problems, I guess. Apparently, hamsters have an incredibly efficient metabolism when it comes to alcohol. Gwen Lupfer, a psychologist at the University of Alaska, says, You just put a bottle of Everclear on the cage and they love it. Wow. Yeah, apparently that's the uh, alcohol they prefer as well as Everclear because it is the purest, the 190 (laughs) proof. (laughs) Listen, they know if they're going to put something into their tiny little bodies with their little bitty lifespan, make it worth it, okay? Only the good stuff, top shelf. They have very refined tastes, or should I say (laughs) distilled. That's right. Hey! (laughs) Preferred by frat boys and hamsters everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So hamsters will regularly down 18 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, which would be the equivalent of a human drinking nearly half a gallon of 190 proof alcohol every day. (laughs) What? They say every day, but it's not going to be every day. It's going to be one day because you would 100% die if you drank that much. But all that being said, it is not impossible to get a hamster drunk, and Lupfer and her grad students came up with a scale to measure their hamster's drunkenness, starting at... (laughs) 
Is it a website that says how drunk is my hamster and you just click and it generates pictures of drunk hamster? Right. The, the scale starts at zero for no visible wobbling and goes all the way up to four for falls onto side and does not right itself. Oh, and believe it or not, this was actually the second system they developed. Their first system involved dipping the hamster's paws in paint and then analyzing their footprints. But they had to abandon that method when they realized they couldn't reliably tell the difference between a staggering hamster and a sober one. <laughs> they have to do the alphabet backwards. Wild. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Give them a sobriety test. Nonetheless, no hamster ever got above 0.5 on the wobbling scale when drinking Everclear. But wow. when the researchers directly injected the alcohol into the hamster's bloodstreams, Ooh. they got real drunk real fast. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> who does that? Gwen Lupford does that. You can uh, look her up. <laughs> <laughs> I meant who injects alcohol right. to get drunk. But okay, right. I'll, I'll talk to Gwen later. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have a serious conversation with her. I need videos. I mean... <laughs> But because it turns out that a hamster's digestive system sends nutrients and other absorbed materials straight to the liver before they ever hit the bloodstream, meaning it never really gets into their system in the first place. Humans, oh. of course, do the opposite. We have a decently effective liver relative to other animal species, but our food goes into our bloodstream first, and then eventually that blood cycles around to the liver to be filtered, which is why we get drunk and then we get sober, right? It processes mm. it out. As for why hamsters have developed this weird anatomical shunting, Lupfer says it's because in the wild, hamsters are what's known as natural hoarders. They build up a store of seeds and fruit in their burrows and then slowly eat through that backlog over the course of the entire winter. And since they obviously don't have little tiny refrigerators, the food gets more and more fermented as time goes on, meaning they have to tolerate very high levels of alcohol or else they'll starve. Ah. Hmm. So along those same lines, scientists think that humans probably developed our partial tolerance for alcohol because of our ancestors' habit of picking up partially fermented fruit off the ground, whereas, by comparison, elephants tend to reach up with their trunks to pull the fruit directly off the tree, so they have no gene for metabolizing alcohol at all. Which actually means it's not only very easy to get an elephant drunk, but they will stay drunk for a much longer time. <laughs> Lupfer suspects that other hoarder species will turn out to have the same ability, but so far they've only looked at hamsters, largely because it's been known for a while that hamsters don't just tolerate alcohol, they prefer it. <laughs> like, they love this stuff. <laughs> and some addiction researchers have used them as a model to study potential alcoholism treatments. Danielle Gulick, an addiction researcher at the University of Florida, says the hamsters prefer it because for them, alcohol is purely caloric, right? It's carbs. So why wouldn't you prefer food over water? Mm -hmm. To demonstrate this, Gulick found that offering hamsters sugar water would reduce their alcohol intake somewhat, but they had no interest in a calorie-free sugar substitute like saccharin. The hamsters were also moderately interested in tomato juice and fruit juice, but the only thing that they fully preferred to the alcohol was a chocolate-flavored Ensure Plus nutrition shake. Hmm. So maybe you get, like, some bodybuilder hamsters out of it, too. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> listen, if you want to... I already liked hamsters before this article, but I have, <laughs> I have new, like, you know, spirit animal recognition now. Yeah. Respect, man. They can, <laughs> they can take you under the table. It's like in Indiana Jones, where she's all, you know, throwing back shots and getting the other guy drunk. Yes. And she can take it. That hamster, he'd win, for sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. People magazine is reporting that a man bedridden with a mysterious disease invents surgery to cure himself. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that that's it. It's the article's pretty freaking amazing. A rare disease left Doug Lindsay bedridden for over a decade, and when doctors couldn't give him answers, he became his own researcher, scientist, and surgical pioneer. Okay, couple of caveats because I'm sure you're wondering. He had just started his senior year studying biochem at Kansas City's Rockhurst College in 1999. And for the next 11 years, he was often too exhausted to just climb out of bed. He was in immense hmm. pain. He reports feeling like someone had run a cheese grater over his forearms with the room oh, spinning ooh. and his heart pounding. So he mm -hmm. set out on a crusade to save himself. So against all odds, he not only ended up repurposing five drugs to alleviate some of his symptoms, but he also convinced a world-renowned specialist to work with him. And after they correctly theorized that a tumor-like growth inside his adrenal glands was the cause of his illness, he huh. then pioneered a surgical procedure to remove it. Quote, I had a mission, says Lindsay, whose findings have improved the lives of his mother and his aunt, who also struggle with the rare disease, which is known as bilateral adrenal medullary hyperplasia. Huh. But what kept me going was knowing there was something out there that might help me and hadn't been tried. 25 million Americans suffer from a rare disorder, and about 80% of those have a name and can be diagnosed. That means there are tens and thousands of people who have different conditions that are really difficult to diagnose. You can't put a name on it. Mm -hmm. And so through his research, he eventually discovered that an abnormal growth was creating an overproduction of the energy-regulating hormone adrenaline. Then he spent two and a half years developing a surgery to remove the growth and another 18 assembling the team of surgeons who would perform the procedure. Wow. Since his final surgery in 2012, he is still taking a bunch of prescription drugs, but he's regained his strength and can often be found sharing his amazing story or going on long walks in his hometown of St. Louis. Well, fully aside from having figured out, okay, medically, this is what is wrong with me and this is the surgery that I think would fix me. To simply convince a doctor to do an unproven surgery, it's massive. Yeah. yeah. They don't do that. They've got liability concerns. Absolutely. And half the doctors are like, uh, you went on WebMD. You don't know as much as me. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter how yeah. brilliant he is. If he can't convince someone with a scalpel, because it's not the kind of surgery you can do on yourself. It's not like the appendectomy down Correct. in Antarctica. Where exactly. You can, like, <laughs> yeah. This is something you have to depend on somebody else to help you do. But he mm -hmm. must have just gone through so much of the literature with so much specificity to outline yeah. and synthesize this plan. I mean, you know, Mary Somerville would be proud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We hope everybody had a great holiday break. We're very happy to be back. Some of the articles that we did not have time to get to today include The History of Predicting the Future. Michigan Animal Shelter Inundated with Parakeets in Breeding Plan Gone Wrong, and NASA Will Let the ISS Disintegrate into the Atmosphere, Here's Why. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to have a New Year's resolution to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.